Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. One of the things that's a constant in the tax world is change, especially when it comes to sales tax. Avalara recently detailed some of these changes in its annual report. To talk about what's changed and changing in the sales tax world, I'm welcoming back Liz Armbruster. Liz oversees global compliance operations at Avalara. With more than 20 years of leadership experience from a variety of technology sectors, including software, media, and services, Liz is known for her strong track record of innovative problem solving, process optimization, and the ability to deliver automation for efficiency and scale. Her commitment to operational excellence and aptitude for partnering cross-functionality helped her drive value in prior roles with Ubiquity, a provider of content monetization technology, and Zilog, a computer microcontroller manufacturer. Thank you so much, Liz, for being on the show again. Kelly, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So I had a glimpse at the report, which I know is, um, I think, still being developed, but it brought up a lot of really interesting points. And you and I had actually talked a few moments before the the show and sort of the things that I thought were interesting were the things that you also, I think, uh, thought were interesting. So let's kind of dive right in with what's sort of driving a lot of the change. And For me, when I was uh, looking through the draft, one of the things that I was struck by is how much COVID continues to impact sales tax moving forward. Well, I think tax generally, but also sales tax moving forward. And I was wondering, it's a two-part question that you may not know the answer to the second one because I don't think anyone does, which is the first is what kind of impact are you seeing? And the second question is, do you have any sense of how long we're going to be dealing with some of these changes. And again, I suspect no one knows the answer to that second one, but just generally, how is COVID impacting markets and sales and sales tax? Great questions. And gosh, Kelly, if I had my crystal ball, (laughs) I would be the first one to tell you how long I think this is going to be impacting us. But so let me give you the short answer to that second question. I think that as we've seen February, March of 2020 in through the duration of 2020 and now in through almost a complete year for 2021, what we do know is that the pandemic has shifted how taxes applied, when is it applied, how are consumers buying, et cetera. And and as long as that is influencing us as consumers and retailers and businesses and governments, we're going to feel some impact of COVID. And it shows up in a, like I said, in a multitude of ways, whether we as consumers are purchasing more or less or the types of things that we're able to consume. And, you know, let's throw in supply chain into that as well. And then how government agencies are reacting or even being proactive in some cases. So when you take a step back and think about the, the impact across the board, there were some things in motion, I would say, pre-COVID. We mm-hmm. knew that e-commerce, for example, was ticking up. More and more people were going online. Retailers were creating opportunities for us as consumers to buy things online. But wow, did COVID accelerate that? Oh, absolutely. 
you couldn't leave your house and what are you going to go do? And that will remain with us, I think, for a long time. The numbers are staggering uh, when you have an opportunity to look at them. We talk about some of that in the 22 report, just what a dramatic shift that has been. And not just domestically, but globally, right, as well, Mm -hmm. which has been a real benefit for many retailers because all of a sudden they're not just selling into a local presence, but they are selling potentially now across multiple states in the U.S. when maybe they weren't doing that before, maybe they're on marketplace, and maybe even now they have a reach into global areas. And that just brings up a whole different level of complexity when it comes to tax. Either you're thinking about economic nexus potentially, and or you're thinking about customs duties, other taxes that are applied if you're selling into different countries. So that's a huge and dramatic change driven by COVID that impacts industries of all types. It also impacts segments. So it, you know, it doesn't matter really whether you're an enterprise customer or maybe just an emerging small business. That type of where you sell to whom you sell, et cetera, you know, marketplace online, e-commerce, et cetera, has definitely had uh, been impacted by the COVID pandemic. And of course, like I said, we're going to see that continue to grow. The other thing when I think about COVID certainly is taxability. So there are a lot of digital goods and services out there and the focus on digital taxability. What can you tax? What isn't being taxed? What is potentially being taxed is something that businesses have to keep up with. And mm-hmm. it is it is changing. I can tell you that there's a, a couple of sections in the report specifically devoted to that even within some industries. So, you know, how is it impacting communications providers, for example, and maybe even businesses that don't really think of themselves as communications providers, but whom are now being held accountable for calculation and collection remittance of tax. So those are some biggies. The other thing that I would focus on specific to COVID is just remote work. So you and I think about it, our experiences probably have been different and just as varied as the audience listening to this podcast is. But for me, I'm still predominantly working from home. I know that for some businesses, they're, they've gone to a hybrid, they're back, you know, in working at least part-time. You know, there are many people who never left the work environment. They're still, you know, going into the office every day. But many people, because they did make that shift to home in a traditional sense or in a pre-COVID world, would have that move and shift to home if they were working in a potentially a different state? I know, you know, a lot of folks that live adjacent to borders typically wouldn't have established nexus for their business. But when they all went home under existing law, they would have established nexus for that business. And so what we saw in early 20 was many of the states suspend that legislation and said, hey, this having a remote worker in a state does not actually now create nexus for the business. However, here we are almost at the end of 21, and many of those changes were temporary, and they have gone back to now saying, actually, it does create nexus for the business. And for many businesses, they And I would recommend to all at this point, because so much of that legislation is changing. Some are keeping that and actually changing for for the future, what that rule looks like, and others are going back to a pre-pandemic 
law where it says that actually that is a nexus creating activity. So it's something that businesses have to keep up on. And as your employer and, and my employer are looking at what does the future state of business look like, that's one of those areas where COVID is going to continue to have an impact based on how our future of work looks like for us, whether you know it's a hybrid or at home or in office. Absolutely. And and that, I would just piggyback on that by saying it's interesting that you you mentioned you know the temporary changes in the law because I do think that that gave some businesses, especially smaller businesses, a false sense of security or maybe a false sense of understanding what the world is going to look like because this is so my husband does some employment law because he works with a lot of companies and this is something that he and I have talked about that with these remote work policies companies aren't thinking about the potential for creating nexus in another state because they haven't had to worry about it. Because even though, you know, maybe the law was on the books, but there might have been, as you mentioned, a grace period or a temporary change that allowed certain businesses to not have to worry that letting their employees work from home was creating a problem for them. But now this is, I do think, a real problem moving forward. And I think in 2022, we're going to kind of see some of the ramifications of this where companies have said, you know what, we're still not back. As you pointed out, we're still not back to normal. We have some folks doing hybrid. We have some folks who are still completely remote companies like PwC that have remote work from anywhere policies. And smaller businesses in particular that are kind of following suit aren't thinking about what that means because they've never had to worry about it before. And I, so I do think that moving forward, this is going to be, you know, something that we're going to be revisiting a lot, um, especially, I think, in the small to mid-sized business range, because I don't think that, again, this is a topic that they've really had to think about before. You're exactly right. And it for me, it just all centers around this idea of awareness and where things are changing. Case in point, I know that Wayfair decision was three years ago. And a lot of times businesses believe that once the economic nexus law, for example, is established, that it's not changing. But that's the one thing that you and I both know to be true about tax is that it constantly changing. Yes. So when we think we've got it, we probably don't. Somebody somewhere has changed a rule that will impact us. And so it's that constant monitoring. What might impact me? Am I selling into a new location? Is there a law that might be impacting me because I've had a shift in how I do work? Those are all things that have to be top of mind for businesses of any size as we start to shift into 22. Absolutely. And I think, you know, just to clarify in case folks haven't been following along, the idea of nexus is a connection, right? So connection to a state is what generally drives the tax or the right to tax. And so the argument has evolved over the years. But since you mentioned Wayfair, for listeners who aren't familiar with Wayfair, it was a sales tax case that went to the Supreme Court about whether or not, you know, you have to have presence, I'm using my air quotes, presence in a state to tax because that used to be we thought about presence in terms of brick and mortar. And so that's changing, right? After Wayfair and, and states are looking at that in different ways. And what is presence? And because because what Wayfair did was it opened the door for states to have a pretty broad understanding of what could constitute nexus. And we've seen states play with this idea, right, of whether or not 
what is Nexus? Is it a cookie? Is it an internet presence? There's lots of things. And it's funny because we've moved away from the idea of physical presence as being a controlling factor because we've been so focused on the internet. But now that employees may be working from a different state, the question is, is that enough to constitute Nexus? That's right. That's exactly right. And the other thing, Kelly, that I'd add to that is just, you know, in the spirit of continual change, we saw 21 finally bring us home with all of the states who do have a sales tax to put Wayfair legislation, you know, in place. There's Missouri still outstanding with, I think their enactment date in 23, but at least they all now have legislation on the books that defines what it looks like for them in terms of a selling dollar threshold or a number of transactions or maybe a combination of both in some cases and an associated marketplace rule around what marketplaces are required to do for calculation and remittance of of sales tax. So for the listeners out there, just know that even when a state has put their law in place Oftentimes, based on what they're seeing with real data, they've come back and made changes. So it's it's not a one and done. It's if you're selling into a particular state, you've got to pay attention to whether those those laws and thresholds are changing over time. And of course, if you're on a marketplace, what your obligation as a seller is as compared to the marketplace to make sure you're compliant with the calculation and of course, the reporting and remittance side of it. Right. And since you mentioned states changing, One of the things I think that's been a really interesting development, and I wanted to say post-COVID so badly, but it's really not post-COVID yet, is it? But uh, something that we did not expect um, as we thought we were coming out of the pandemic was seeing that states actually were in a different economic position than we thought that they might be. I think that the idea early on was that with people maybe working in different states, that states might be scrapping a bit for income. But some states are actually finding themselves to be a bit flush when it comes to revenue, largely driven by online sales revenue. So what are you hearing or what are you seeing about changes that states might be making or potential trends that states might be facing as a result of having more cash on hand? Do you think that means that they're going to lay low? Are they going to be more aggressive about collections? What do you see or what do you think might be the next step there? Well, Kelly, going back to my crystal ball idea, I don't even know that anybody who had a crystal ball in March of 2020 would have said that states would be in a surplus position. Oh, agree. I think we were talking completely the opposite about this last year on the program. So yeah, exactly. In California, they've got an expected $31 or $31 billion surplus for 2022. And there's a couple of other states in similar positions. And so, you know, I think that's good news because for many, it will cause states to cut back in areas like receipts tax. And, you know, we've heard states like North Carolina facing out corporate income tax as a result. So definitely changes on the horizon. And similar to what we've seen in the past, you know, no two states are going to do it the same. They're going to choose uh, what works best for their economy. But certainly, I think some changes are on the horizon. Now, that puts some states obviously more reliant on sales tax. So businesses need to be prepared for that. Marketplaces, remote sellers should be on notice for impacts. Because again, while we just talked about the Wayfair laws, generally, for the most part, 
are on cruise control and they're delivering those steady streams of tax revenue. But I think that that means potentially because the focus is on sales tax, remote sellers, marketplaces, et cetera, might expect increased enforcement. And from a marketplace perspective, easy for the auditor. They're a one-stop shop. Right. I think that two things are actually driving that. So not just the surplus, but this notion of things are more digital, digital transaction, tax data is available digitally. I mean, during the pandemic, we've seen auditors shift to virtual audits and the ability of a business to electronically provide records, et cetera, et cetera, is now the norm. And so for businesses who have not made that transformation to be more digital, have more electronic um, files at the ready and be organized in such a way that if the auditor comes knocking, get prepared, right? Be on notice because the world is shifting that way. And you and I also talked before the, before the podcast, just again, what's happening elsewhere in the world outside of the United States. And if we're going to use that as our guide, certainly digitalization is coming to a neighborhood near you. And that, <laughs> that just means, right, that, that businesses have to be on alert and making those transformations so that from conception all the way out to, to order delivery, that there's a digital footprint for that along the way. So definitely lots of changes coming as a result of these surpluses. And they're not everywhere, but the surplus is happening. And you alluded to more digitalization. And and of course, one of the things that has been in the news, I know we've been talking about this, Bloomberg, about the VAT in Europe being subject to real-time reporting. This is something that's becoming increasingly popular. Do we think this is coming to the U.S.? And if it is, is it a good thing? And what should people be looking out for? Yeah, I think real-time compliance, and there's there's going to be a couple of terms that I'll throw out here. So and my goal is to keep it simple. So please hold me accountable to the simplicity <laughs> principle here. Because when you start talking about real-time compliance, there's a lot of terms that are out there and they can get really confusing really quickly. So when we talk about real-time compliance, really there's two elements to it as I think about it. When a transaction happens, there is effectively a report, right? There's documentation of that transaction and happening between buyer and seller. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the payment of that is associated at the same time. Sometimes that payment comes later. And sometimes the remittance of that is disconnected with the reporting. So I think about it really in two buckets, the, the reporting component itself of the transaction, and then the actual remittance of the tax due to the government. But effectively, both of those elements bundled together as real-time compliance is certainly in its infancy in the U.S. However, I do think that there in 22, that we're going to see it to be a really pivotal year and kind of shaping the strategy that tax authorities may ultimately adopt. And again, I'll go back to there might be kind of some centralization of, of how we think about real-time compliance but oftentimes the states tend to do it the way that they want to and that's best for them. So hopefully there'll be some harmony in that, but, but we'll see. But if you look elsewhere in the world, you could see a lot of evidence, digitalization of tax real-time compliance. In its most real-time state, you're thinking about a transaction that effectively has to be approved by a government agency before the transaction can actually take place. So it's certified, stamped, 
the tax revenue agency knows about that transaction and they know the tax that's going to be due to them at the end of the period. In some places in Europe, it is in that kind of more real-time state. Oftentimes, it's maybe a couple of days, some period of maybe up to four days post the transaction happening that the government is notified, the tax agency is notified of that transaction happening. But know that it's all electronic, right? So it's happening through interfaces with government agencies, and the report of those transactions is being recorded, hence the digitalization component of that. So what we know in the U.S. is that there are still a lot of states who are reliant on paper. Mm -hmm. So the data that they do have on businesses today and their compliance remains somewhat limited. There was a, I think we cite an Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center study in our 22 Changes report and basically stated that most states really have little insight into their tax data, but they really want more. So we've seen some action in 21 where Maryland took a step forward on taxing some digital advertising and maybe bringing tax payments in line closer to the point of transaction. Massachusetts has been toying with a couple of different ideas, et cetera. And then there's a whole other effort, we want to talk federal, digitizing the tax process between the Federal Reserve and the business payments coalition. They got a joint project going on aimed at modernizing business-to-business payments, the development of a standardized electronic invoicing system. So all those terms, you know, reporting, remittance, e-invoicing, real-time, et cetera, they all kind of hover around the same idea, which is data being digital, data being and reporting being closer to the point in time of transaction, and maybe even the remittance getting closer and closer to the point in time of transaction as well, as opposed to a 30-day or quarter period or semi-annual or even annual period for filers. So when it comes to real-time invoicing and reporting, I'm kind of curious, just from a how-does-it-work standpoint, who does the coding, and by coding, I'm not talking about like the computer coding, I mean the coding of what's taxable, what's not. So is that something that's done on the government end? Is it something that's done by at the register, they make that determination? How does that work? Like if if it's real time, who who makes that determination? Because I know in audits, that's often one of the questions, right? Like, was this really a taxable sale? So who makes that determination? So at the register, still okay. have same way. It's effectively the report of that. And I am no expert on tax in Brazil, but what I can tell you based on what I do know is that when that transaction and the tax that is estimated to be due comes in, it does give the the tax agency an opportunity to look at individual transactions, look at the transactions in whole, and be able to do validations and verifications. And then I would think that tax agencies are going to have an opportunity to report back either in the moment and say, hey, no, that doesn't look right, and Mm -hmm. or maybe post-transaction to give a report back to the business. But effectively, all of that is built to combat fraud, right? So that the tax agency understands the number of transactions that are happening, and they can look at a broad set of data and look for trends, Mm -hmm. look for broad undercalculation or missing, you know, what seems to be missing transactions based on historical trends as well. So again, how different agencies institute that and the reporting back 
likely is going to be different, right, across the states. But generally, no, the impetus to calculate tax and do it accurately still will fall on the business. And what's interesting to me as you talk about places like Brazil and and other places around the world is that the U.S. likes to think of ourselves as a leader in technology and in other sectors. But I think a lot of tax professionals would agree that we lag behind, uh, especially on the technology side, when it comes to tax. What are some of the other trends or countries where you see maybe advances or differences that we're not yet seeing in the U.S. So we, we talked about, again, real-time reporting, I know that is big in Europe right now. It's something that they're looking heavily at. Are there other advances um, in other countries that we should be aware of? Well, I think, I mean, we've generally hit the vast majority, right? And very similar to how I believe it would probably be instituted in the U.S., um, a lot of the countries who are instituting some elements of real-time or near real-time reporting are doing it slightly differently. Hungary, Italy, France, you know, et cetera, all kind of have their own unique style around this. But what I think is interesting is, you're right, oftentimes we think of ourselves here in the United States as leaders. What I think what will be interesting to me is oftentimes we do have a great amount of innovation when it comes to technology. And so what this might afford us the opportunity to do, because we are lagging theoretically right behind what other countries are doing, it provides us an opportunity to see what's working and how it's working in other countries and be able to pair that with technology that's continually being developed today here in the United States and abroad and figure out maybe how we leapfrog some of the other systems. Right. And and determine what's best for us with our tax structure, because obviously it's it's different than elsewhere um, around the globe. So I don't know about any specific other things that I think are probably interesting for your audience here. But I do think that there are multiple groups. I know there are multiple groups in particular states that are beginning to you know put their heads together and think about how they might want to marry technology with some of the best practices that are happening around the globe to, again, get closer to near real-time reporting and ultimately to remittance. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the things that is in the news very much right now is the OECD rules and how they're going to impact multinational companies. I do wonder if, if maybe, you know, the kind of the goal, right, is to, one of the goals is to uh, encourage countries to do business in the places where they are being taxed or they call their headquarters, right? That is something that's, I think, a challenge over the the years that companies may say that they're headquartered in a particular location because it's tax favored when in fact most of their business is happening somewhere else. We've seen a little bit of those same kinds of accusations of late uh, in the U.S., Do you think that these increased reporting requirements would help mitigate some of that in the U.S.? Because, again, I I think that to use uh, the example of Ireland, which, you know, not not to pick on Ireland, but it is is one of the times, one of the countries that we uh, we talk about a lot when it comes to tax rates. It's traditionally had a lower corporate tax rate than many other countries, including the U.S. So the allegations are that companies put headquarters in Ireland so they could take advantage of those low rates, even though they might have been doing business elsewhere. And then, you know, with the the 
recent release of certain data, there's been a suggestion that the same kind of thing has been happening in the U.S. Do you think that more transparency that can happen with this potentially the real-time reporting would change the way that companies do business inside the U.S.? There's a potential. And the reason is actually pretty simple. The data provides the opportunity for somebody to look at that for then behavior to change. But that's where the opportunity lies is we have data around us all the time in so many different capacities. And oftentimes that data goes untapped. So it will take a vested interest on multiple parties fronts to determine if that's something they want to look at in order to change behavior of businesses. So yes, the opportunity is there. It's just a matter of whether people choose to take action and force a potential behavior change. But yes, the opportunity is there from transparency. And I think that I think that holds true for a multitude of things, whether we're talking about corporate income tax or general behavior of businesses, all the way up to taxation, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of of taking the enormous data that is already at our disposal and being able to look at that data and analyze it in order to arrive at you know some interesting facts and and then take action as a result of it. And all of these moving parts can be I think really overwhelming for business owners and also for tax practitioners. So if folks were going to focus on one thing in 2022 to keep their eyes peeled for. And again, I appreciate that there's a lot that has to be considered when you're looking at compliance. But if there was one kind of takeaway that people should have from the show today, like what is the one thing that you would counsel people to be aware of in the coming year or to make themselves aware of? Yeah, I think that again, you know, we, we've said it a couple of times, we know changes are constant. So I never want businesses to get comfortable with the status quo, right? The awareness factor is significant. And for most businesses, it will take shape in kind of really two areas. So if I can give the one recommendation, but break it out to two areas, it's really focusing on all of the changes that are happening in and around digital taxes. So because there is just so much change there. So if that's even somewhat close to your business, definitely something to pay attention to. And then the, you know, the impact of just ongoing nexus changes. We talked a lot about remote workers and the impact that that has, but also don't forget about the other physical nexus requirements. So as you go about doing business in 22, where and how you do business through marketplace, online, et cetera, might be impacted by changing rules state to state. So pay attention to those as well. And then last, I would say, as your business footprint potentially expands, just know that there's a lot of change happening elsewhere in the tax industry around the globe. So whether you happen to be exporting and going and selling product into Europe or elsewhere in the world, or maybe it's your supply chain that has changed as a result of the recent kind of state of the state, just recognize that that may impact you from a nexus standpoint as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I think this is uh, great information. It is something, again, that I think will keep changing. So I am so glad to have you uh, on the show as an update. If folks wanted to find you and you wanted to be found either on social media or on the web, where would you send them? Avalara.com. And please go and utilize the resources that we have available on our website. You can also find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, et cetera. We are everywhere, Facebook, et cetera. But the 22 tax changes report that Kelly, you and I have both referenced 
is available um, and out on the website. It is long. Please do not feel overwhelmed by the length of the report. We have done a great job at categorizing areas that might be interesting to specific needs that you have. So jump in, hit a particular section. And then, you know, if that doesn't clarify the question, happy to help you with any of our Avalara representatives, um, you know, and or seek counsel, of course, through your tax professional. And I would just add that one of the things that I found helpful is it's full of links, which I think sometimes is missing in when folks are looking at trying to sort out a lot of information. I think there's a lot of resources available to help you figure out some of these terms that you might not be familiar with. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. I think I spent about a day just hitting all the hyperlinks in the report. (laughs) So there's definitely a lot of content to be had and hopefully you'll find some answers to your question. Awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be. The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million, about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.